Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you I have not yet had the privilege of getting to meet, my name is Sarah Seabrook. I am on staff team here at HTC, and I'm the discipleship pastor here. For a bit of context, I'm married to David. We have three delightful children. Um, our trio of delight. Rebecca is eight years old, and then we have Zoe and Abigail, our twin daughters, who are almost 11. A fun fact, they were born on Good Friday 11 years ago. The Good Friday was especially good that year for us. Another fun fact about me, for better or for worse, I drive a car around the streets of London. And on my daily commute, I often get caught in that game of chicken between the two commons here. Now, if you're not familiar with that game, when you drive along those roads, there's a moment, normally when I turn onto Bromwood Road, where I look down and I see a car that's turning into the same street as me, but there is no space for us to both pass at the same time. And instantly, there is this moment of pause. Will they wait for me, or will I wait for them? Who is going to give? So the game begins. Now, at this moment, multiple thoughts start running through my mind. Firstly, how late for school drop-off will I be if I allow this gentleman and the entourage of cars behind him to go first? Secondly, I have a quick check in my rearview mirror and think, okay, maybe there are some cars behind me that will make it justifiable for our team to go ahead. And maybe if I'm lucky, there's even a doctor in that line that justifies me speeding through. Thirdly, I quickly do a tally in my mind and think, when was the last time somebody let me first on this road? <laughs> no, I'm sure it was me last time. It's definitely my time to go first. So, my fists begin to grab. My fists, they grab that steering wheel. And I hear the collective inhale of the trio of delight sitting behind me as I put the car into gear. And in that moment, I make a choice. And to be honest, nine times out of 10, me, your discipleship pastor, puts foot and takes charge down that road. And really, if I'm honest, the main reason is not because I'm going to be late. And it's also not because there is a stream of traffic behind me that I'm courageously trailblazing and allowing doctors through to get to hospital. It really is because I have put on my sense of entitlement. Why should he go first? Surely I am just as entitled to the stretch of the road as she is. And I will prove that as I zoom down Brimwood Road. You're going to be looking for me next week. <laughs> now, maybe not all of you identify with this exciting game of chicken that I play daily. But as I've looked back over the last couple of weeks and watched my encounters with other people, I've realized the same sense of entitlement has cropped up time after time after time. A couple of weeks ago, Dave had a work dinner that he invited me to join him for. 
Same night, I had a work event that I invited him to join me for. Who was going to win at the game of entitlement? Well, what about those pedestrians that step into the road so entitled and they don't even look at me to say thank you when I stop at the pedestrian crossing? Or what about that little bit of information at work that I'm hearing talk about? Surely I'm entitled to know what it is. I am a valid member of the staff team here. Surely it is my right and I am entitled to know all that's going on. I actually had three pages of examples of entitlement <laughs> just from the last two weeks, but last sermon I went over 10 minutes, so I had to cut some of those out. But really, in essence, this is talking about my sense of entitlement, in particular about who I am, my status, and what it means that I am entitled to. We often don't recognize when we are behaving in a way that is entitled. But in essence, it looks like us walking through life with that proverbial chip on our shoulder. As I elevate myself over and above others, so much so that I land up on a pedestal that over a lifetime I have built up. As I was doing research for today, I diligently headed off down to the library and I was thoroughly grateful for some wonderful commentaries that Ed and Jago and these brilliant minds loaned to me. This was a particularly heavy and helpful one. But the one place I found some really surprising help was in the children's book section. So I nestled into a comfy bean bag in Northcote Library and I found some incredibly helpful illustrations in the book series, The Little Princess. Here are some examples of these stories. I want a shop. I want a party. I want to be and in this particular book, the, quest, the princess's main question is, what do I want to be one day? And her family and the staff around her start suggesting really brilliant things. Maybe be clean, maybe be brave. What about a good swimmer? The prime minister suggests that she aims to be clever. Remarkably though, nobody in this book at any stage suggests that she becomes a slave or that she becomes a commoner. The closest is a suggestion by her dad to be kind and loving. But in this book, as is mirrored in all of our culture, the conclusion she gets to is that it's about being you. The unique, the beautiful, the full of potential for good you. But if I'm honest, the real me, it's just out for self-preservation. It's just out for building my own kingdom, just like this little princess. Claiming our rights is often an excuse for selfishness, an excuse for pride, and even evil activity. 
We are able to dress it up more in our adult layers of justification. It's often not, not as raw or as obvious as it is in the Little Princess book series. I deserve to have my tumble dryer repaired because I am paying a lot in rent and I'm never late on my rent. I deserve to know what's happening in the holiday club next week because I am a core member of this team and they've neglected to tell me. But if we're honest, at the core of much of my activity and ways of relating in this world is just a propensity to be building my own castle. And this pedestal that sets me apart, not as God would have me be set apart as holy to God, but as kings in my own right. Even in our serving, sometimes our motives are more about recognition. How will it look to others? How might this show up on my CV in 10 years? And I wonder if these were the thoughts that Jesus was having as he was riding that donkey toward Jerusalem. Was he wondering how does this look to others? Was he wondering what his future job prospects are as he looked around at all of those religious leaders? But still, he followed that path to the cross. So how do we move away from a mindset of entitlement? So I went back to the kids section. Anna, the angry Saurus, told me that if I want to overcome any angry feelings, or anything negative, I need to think of all the good things that I've done. I need to reach back to polish my crown. And in that moment, I realized I have to rather turn to the book that I know is full of truth and is full of life. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter two, verse one to 11. Going to come up on the screen as well. Sanjay, thank you. Would you come up and read that for us? If you're in the PU Bibles, it's page 1179. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Sandy. As we are here gathered today on this Palm Sunday, we look to the one who made his steady, his humble way to face so much of the opposite of what we would imagine a king coming in all his glory would look forward to encountering. Who is this Jesus? Contrasting him to me, the end of the street, my hands gripping that steering wheel, ready for any excuse to put my foot on the pedal and take charge. He's there on that humble donkey. So submissive, so countercultural. And I wonder can humility and power coexist? Who is this Jesus who both being in the very nature God, but at the same time being made man and taking on the form of a slave, and then in God's divine providence was raised up to the name that is above every other name? I love how Eugene Peterson describes our Savior in this quote. Jesus is the name that keeps us attentive to the God-defined, God-revealed life. The amorphous limpness so often associated with spirituality is given skeleton, sinews, definition, shape, and energy by the term Jesus. Jesus is the personal name of a person who lived at a dateable time in an actual land that has mountains we can still climb, wildflowers that can be photographed and smelled, cities in which we can still buy dates and pomegranates, and water which we can drink and in which we can be baptized. Jesus is the central and defining figure in the spiritual life. His life is precisely revelation. He brings out into the open what we could never have figured out for ourselves, never guessed in a million years. Jesus, as we see in verse four here, model, verse five, he models a mindset that is then outworked by a lifestyle that is radical, to say the least. In one way, we can say that Christ's story is an antidote for all the vain grasping at status that we live by. In his choosing to become human, Jesus didn't become any less God. However, he chose to limit his rights to glory and to power in submission to God's will. And this begs the question, why? It would only make sense if there was a far, far greater good in mind. What could be greater? 
than to claim the unlimited power and glory of being God. What could be greater? As Jesus modeled, laying down our self-desiring and culturally affirming kingdom to promote others and to usher in the kingdom of God results in, as we see in Matthew 21, we read about the triumphal entry, people shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And as we read in this passage, every tongue acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord, every knee bowing to the glory of God the Father. Now, as a bit of context, the world that the Philippians were living in when Paul wrote this letter, it was full of opportunity for disunity, even amongst the believers in the church. Not entirely dissimilar to how the church has been through history or is today. Actually, this term in Philippians 2 verse 3, this term humility or lowly disposition, Paul apparently coined that term. It was such an unfamiliar cultural concept to be of low disposition. The goal that Paul was aiming at here was for perfection in the unity of the church fellowship because we have this shared partnership with Jesus. But before he calls us to humility, he first tells us how to not behave in verse three and four. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In the body of believers, no one person is unimportant, but each one should consider the other as more important. No one is unimportant in the body but each of us should consider the person behind us, the person next to us, that person in front of us as more important. And when we're living out of this perspective, no one in the community will be dishonored. No one in the community will go without care. This vision of community where members willingly lay down their right to status instead to serve others, will always be both compelling, it will be so attractive, but it will also always, always be countercultural. The fruit of entitlement is so beautifully summed up in Galatians in chapter five. We're gonna look here at the messages version of the fruit of entitlement. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, 
small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. Does any of this feel or sound familiar? And then in contrast to that, we hear about the fruit of having the mind of Christ, where life of selfishness is instead replaced by a life of the Spirit. And the fruit that's produced there isn't workspace, but it's actually Spirit-enabled. So further down in Galatians 5, this is what it says. He brings gifts into our life much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since back in Genesis chapter three, we see the first instance of humans determined to be God, to be divine rulers in our own lives and in whatever realms of influence we are part of. And there's just been this downward trajectory in how the world and relationships function. This is a reality that honestly has us headed to ultimate death and discord and self-inflicted slavery to these desires. Jesus' life and teaching ashes in a kingdom. He ashes in a society of peace and of justice and of unity that we all honestly do ache for, whether or not we are followers of Jesus. He was totally different to anything, anyone, even his followers were expecting. It was a completely upside down dynamic that at face value, seems like he's setting himself up for failure. Where the first will be last. Where the powerful serve the weak. Where the lonely are placed in families where the rich give generously to the poor, where the misfit has a place at my table, where sins are forgiven, where grace is given and not only given over and over and over again, but given in abundance, where love of God and others reign. It doesn't look like any of the human kingdoms we have ever known or the world will ever know going forward. Instead, this upside down kingdom of Christ, which is ushered in on a donkey, in one of many moments of him laying down his right to glory for the bigger vision of God's kingdom that he was setting in motion, which not to spoil the story for next Sunday, 
But that ended in that moment when he died in that shame-filled, excruciatingly pain-filled death on the cross. And in that moment, he broke the power of death and of the sins and of the grave once and for all. If we are willing to lay down our lives, to lay down our crowns, and instead become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The really unfathomable truth about all of this is that it is accessible to all who the Bible says repent and believe. What does that mean? Those who are willing to change our mindsets about what the good life really does look like and instead put our confidence and put our trust in Jesus to free, to heal, and to save us as he leads us to the life that all along we honestly have been aching for. Just like the little princess, we all have a kingdom or a queendom. And that is the range of our effective will. However, the truth is that these kingdoms, when they're contrasted with the kingdom of God, we see that they aren't really kingdoms of peace. Instead, we become people who turn against ourselves. We're left to our own devices. We naturally do our own selves, our families, our communities, our earth. We do them more good, more harm than good. Our best attempts at good are sabotaged by our humanness as we keep tripping over our need to assert our kingdoms. John Ortberg writes, salvation isn't primarily about going to a good place, but becoming good people as defined by becoming people of love, willing the good of others at all times in all situations with compassion, wisdom, courage and resolute fidelity, we need to be saved not just from what will happen to us, but what could happen in us, from who we could become. Sin isn't just doing wrong things, but becoming the wrong person. So what would it look like to practically get off our pedestals that we've spent the last X number of years building? Or put another way, what would it look like to knock the proverbial chip off my shoulder and instead lower that shoulder into the neat place in the yoke that Jesus is standing next to us offering to journey with us as we carry? Here's four practical ways to shift these mindsets. Firstly, it's in filling and in training our minds Anytime we need to reestablish new habits, it's about over and over refilling and retraining our minds with practices that reflect on our days, our interactions, and our attitudes, but also with spending time reading things, sitting under teachings, listening to things that align with the mindset of Christ so that we do begin to think like him. 
As we do these activities, we consider our motivations. Christ's motivation was never his self-pleasure or how to make himself more comfortable or more prominent. It was only to do God's will and then to make a way for others to encounter God more fully. Secondly, we need to surrender our will. We need to drop that shoulder to realign with his yoke. Um, In Philippians 2 verse 13, um, it speaks of God being at work in us to give us the desire and to give us the power to do what pleases him. He wants to come alongside us. He wants to be with us as our help. His spirit wants to reside in us. He gives us both the desire and through his spirit, the power to do what pleases him. How often do we really ask God though? How often do we ask God to give us his desire to do his will? Honestly. And if when we look around and we see that maybe his will is producing pain or shame or some discomfort or some suffering, we wanna quickly say that's wrong. We wanna quickly fight back against it. But when we surrender to our cross, we can't be surprised when we find ourselves shouldering a cross. Thirdly, we need to dive in. We need to actively look for opportunities to behave in ways that serve others and bring God glory. A couple of weeks ago, Jamie spoke about how we desire things and therefore we invest in them. And at the same time, we invest in things and then land up desiring them more. Often it is in doing God's will that we gain the desire to be more in God's will. Sometimes we just need to discipline ourselves to do what we know he wants and trust him out of that to change our selfish entitled desires. Super practically, that's going before God after, after this, um, this session this morning or tomorrow morning in the quiet and say, God, what are those areas in my life where I am super entitled? And how can you help me actively do things that are opposite to this? My sister is a great example. She, she loves a good cup of tea. And whenever she makes tea for other people, she makes the two cups and she looks at them and she thinks, which one is the nicer cup of tea? And she gives that one to her husband or to her friend or to every single day. She's giving the cup intentionally that doesn't look as good because she's trying to retrain her mind into the mindset of Christ. It's not about me. It's about serving. What are really practical things that we can do? And then fourthly, we do this in community with other believers. We invite accountability. We ask folk to mentor us. We watch the elders in our faith and we learn the shapes and the rhythm of being a Christian from those who have walked further and who have worked harder. And then we take our own steps. 
For some, this new mindset may happen in an instant, but to be honest, this seems to be more the exception than the rule. For most followers of Christ, it's a slow and a steady letting go. It's an unclinging. It's a loosening of the the grasp around these desires of control and a daily determination to reframe our mindsets in the direction of Christ. Now it's worth taking a moment here to say that there is a difference between not grasping at our status and allowing others to walk all over us. Humility is not denying who I am. It is knowing and appreciating who I am and then serving others out of that. The reality is that in our culture today, very few of us would be prone to allow others to walk all over us. But it is not an impossibility. And if you believe you are, or anybody you know is being taken advantage of and is continually being demeaned, then don't see this passage or anything about Christ's life that is saying it approves of that kind of behavior. See, in all of this, Jesus, in very nature God, stepped down. He took on. He chose to not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited or to cling to. He had agency for the way he behaved. And that is as true for you and I here today as it was for him then. When Christ Jesus left the bliss of heaven for the miseries of earth for you and I, his purpose was not only to rescue us from our sins' just deserts, though it was that, It was not only to set us an example of humility, though it was that. It was also to reconfigure the inclinations of our heart and mind so that his mindset, that is his joy in selflessly serving others, is becoming our mindset. We'll end here with this quote that summarizes this from Glenn Harris. Uh, Glenn Harrison, who came to speak here a couple of weeks ago. He wrote, if there is a God and if he has revealed himself in the Christian gospel, then we have a story to live by and that changes everything. First and perhaps most importantly of all, it changes our perspective or our mindset. Instead of aiming for what's good for me, We are called to aim for what's good for his kingdom and what's good for his glory. It's not about me. This is God's big story. And as we remodel the plot line of our lives around its becoming destiny, we discover the liberation of self-forgetfulness. Like happiness, you see, True significance is discovered in aiming for something else. Thank you.